In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with a uh, amazing man, a candidate for governor, and an all-around great human being that wants to create change, not only for himself, but for the state of Hawaii. And we're going to get into some topics today. Gary, how are you? I'm very well, George. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I've uh, been, for those who are not paying attention, Gary Cordery is, in my opinion, the best candidate for governor. He's, if you go to his Instagram page and all the links would be down in the show notes, you can see some of the things he's been doing from signing or from uh, being out in Laie, got mailers going out now, been all through Kailua, talking about healthcare. Where, what do you want to start off with today? Uh, anything in particular? Uh, well, you know, the campaign is really ramping up. You mentioned a couple of things. You know, I, I was thinking a moment ago about our conversations and how free flowing they've been and. Yeah. And how non-political they've been, which has been kind of a treat. Uh, <laughs> you know, the fact that we can just be regular, regular human beings and discussing important topics. But on the other hand, this is the political season. I, you know, we wouldn't have known each other if I hadn't declared to, to make a commitment to alter and bring righteousness to the executive branch. So balancing these things, I, you know, I, I would say that, you know, part of, uh, part of campaigning is really ramping up into high gear. You mentioned a number of things that we're doing We've been doing those things for a while, but we've become much more strategic. Uh, we have mail-in campaigns. We have a, uh, a mail-in uh, phone town hall this evening where there'll be 20,000 people invited to participate in the town hall. That's exciting. We have door-to-door, specific targeted door-to-door walk, walkbook campaigns, uh, you know, phone banking campaigns, direct mail campaigns, not to mention just the going to events or when we finish this, I'll run off to a meeting at Red Hill with a, a number of pastors there at Red Hill and their families will be there. And then, uh, you know, later on, we'll be at another venue. And uh, so that piece, you know, sign waving is a part of it. These conversations are a part of it. And they're all, they're all for the same reason. They're out, they're all to, to give an opportunity for uh, the citizens of Hawaii to listen to the message, to hear what's possible. 
that there's hope, that there's hope for Hawaii. Uh, you know, obviously the real true, true hope comes from the King of Heaven, but and politically there's hope for change. And I, and I don't mean that by way of, uh, we had a previous uh, president who ran on hope for change. Well, that's not the change that I'm recommending, nor is it the one that will occur. So the change that we're looking for is really for the people's voice back through honest government, through good policy, through accountability, through common sense. So these are these are what we're about this day. And we're going to ramp up hard for the rest of this month. And that we're looking for, uh, we're working on some TV spots. Uh, we're still trying to underwrite these things. So fundraising is a big point, big, big element. So a lot going on. Thank you for that question. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, uh, you know, I think I admire your, uh, your history as a builder. And I think that that plays well into building a new future for people, be it through government relationships or just even contacts daily. Another part about being a builder that I think, um, uh, fits into today's narrative is this potential for a huge recession coming. Things are looking pretty bleak for not only for everybody throughout the state, throughout the nation. And you've been in Hawaii you know, for what, 30 years now? 40, 42 years. 40, 42 yeah. years. You've seen, some, you've seen some of the housing crisis and you've seen right. some of the, the downturns. What, what do you think we can look, look for if indeed the recession hits hard in Hawaii and how will that affect your campaign and government in Hawaii? You know, I've actually been thinking about this for several weeks now, uh, thinking about what it will be, to, what it will be like to govern in 23. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the prospects don't look good on paper. When you look at the fact that we have, like you, as mentioned, you know, eight, over 8% inflation, in Hawaii, people don't actually realize it, but we've been living on COVID money for the last two years, gluts of money, you know, in the billions. Uh, we've, all of our agencies, all these construction projects, all of these uh, capital improvement projects for the state, for the city, for the Department of Education. And I'm not talking about just construction projects, you know, in the residential or commercial area. I'm talking about government funded projects, unemployment benefits, uh, you know, big deposits from the federal uh, federal branch into Hawaii, that's gonna run out. So not only do we have these three, we have, we have a perfect storm brewing, to be honest with you, George. You have an ever, you have an ever increasing budget. You, you saw probably last week, June 1st, this, this city council passed the Honolulu budget. They raised the budget by $220 million. They added 500 plus permanent employees. They gave themselves a raise all at the same time when you have, they know that they're running out of the COVID money. They know inflation is around, it's already here and it's around the corner. And you have a decreasing population base. The tax paying base is, is actually shrinking in Hawaii. So what do, you, what do I see? I see some rough conversations in the future. I'm thinking, I thought to myself, really? You wanna be governor under those circumstances? But the answer is yes. Because what we actually need is we need proper allocation of these funds, and this is what we don't have. The idea that we that two point uh, that fifteen billion is not enough to run a state. Somebody said to me last night at an event, at an event "Why don't we just give everybody in the state a million dollars?" I thought that's a crazy idea, but then I started thinking about it. You know, we're gonna we're, we're we have a fifteen billion dollar and budget. We have one point five million people. The math seems to work out. I know I'm talking crazy, but my point is. Not that that's, and I told the guy, I said, you know, that's an interesting concept. I, I'm sure it does not pencil out because, you know, numerous reasons, right? <laughs> right. On the other hand, uh, what he was really alluding to, and he didn't actually realize it, 
but he was actually uh, alluding to such bad management of the resources. Right. Not and not just not just the financial ones, but every resource that we have in Hawaii is managed so poorly that there's so much waste. I'm not even talking about corruption. I'm just talking about bad administrative policy and structure. And so it, there's going to be a lot of belt tightening. Getting back to your original question, what does it look like? There's going to be some significant cuts. They're going to have to be implemented. And I don't want to necessarily be the one to do that. On the other hand, I don't mind doing that because this is what wisdom does. You have to look back at history and actually take that into account. That's what we don't have in our political systems. You have people who just, hey, so what if this happened before? We're going to spend money like it didn't happen before. So, you know, the federal policies, the Biden administration policies, the implication in Hawaii is magnified because of our geographical location in the world. So this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating some rough time. I really am. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's, when you say it's a perfect storm, not only is it a monetary and fiscal problem, but it's a, it's a demographic problem too. You know, there's so many of our young kids that got shipped out of here because they have nothing to do. And now you have a somewhat of an, an aging population and, and there's, there's no trough to feed at. And That's when right. there's no money coming, I, I like what you said about having the courage to do something, because I think far too many people, they, you know, if not, nothing ever gets better until you admit something's wrong. But we have right. all these people in the big house down there that just seem to be like, hey, this is great. There's nothing wrong. I wonder, I wonder what kind of strategies we could implement to, do you have any policies that, that, that you think you could talk about that would help streamline some of this, this monetary problems we're having or may have in the future? Well, one of the things that I've been noticing just researching the way government functions, and I'm talking about at the department level, mm -hmm. is what you notice is you'll find in the Department of Health things like wastewater. This is under the Department of Health. You find what you find is you find this cross administrating of all types of policy where every department has a hand in it, right? So when you go to resolve a problem, you can't just go to the stakeholders. You have to go to people and agencies that are completely unrelated. And then they, they have an entire staff, an administrative staff to manage their unrelated piece. So one of the things that needs to happen is within the policies. You, so, so why isn't water use in DLNR? Why isn't the water management system in the department that's supposed to manage our, our resources, right? It's in the Department of Health. So th these kinds of multiplicity of management uh, administrations, they overlay, but when you get into them, you find out that yes, in fact, DLNR is in water management, and so is Department of Health, and so is Department of Education. I, I, I was looking at the Department of Education's site the other day and looking at the ESSER funds, you, you, whether you know about the ESSER oh, funds, are, 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 a, are one over a billion dollars that come in, they're federal money, they're directed through the Department of Education, but looking into their budget last year, Department of Education spent $300,000 at the Ellison Onizuka Memorial on the Big Island. Now, what exactly, how do you make that connection? What, how does this make sense for a, for a community whose resources are already stretched? The resources have been given from the federal government. They're being mismanaged by, through the Department of Education because this is, this is the way our government hides money. Hmm. They, each department has its own little pet project and it somehow fits, they, they, take a bit, they, they take a number of people who understand the requirements, 
that are that are put on an agency to release federal funds. They somehow move, I shouldn't say this somehow, it's not that vague actually. They move things around within the administrative piece of that department until what they want to do somehow fits the criteria to release the funds. It has nothing to do with education, but you have to use utilize loopholes and interesting strategies and, and nomenclature and use these things that all of a sudden your pet project, the Department of Education's project at Ellison Onizuka Memorial, all of a sudden we're giving them $300,000. Now, do I love the memorial there? Of course I do, it's a treasure. It's a national treasure. Should the Department of Education be funding this? Doesn't seem like education to me. Right. Right. This is just one example of thousands of examples, both from six, high six-figure stuff to, you know, 800 and 100,000, 50,000, 20,000. These, these things add up. You go to the grocery store, you start adding, you start filling up that, that, that uh, grocery sack, that $4 thing, $6 thing, $12 thing, all of a sudden you get your bag of groceries, it's $112. It adds up. This is what the government does not get. So do we need to, do we need to uh, uh, have a look at the way structure is? Uh, absolutely. There needs to be a major reorganization and a reprioritization of, of accountable government that's, that's actually related to the resources that are being allocated. Yeah, that's really well said. Another, uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, as I drive around, I spend a lot of time on the road and I, I have noticed an incredible amount of houses going up for sale and the ones that aren't going up for sale are being remodeled to be flipped, you know, and it's, I, I think we are in for a really interesting time when it comes to housing. Everybody knows that the affordability in Hawaii is, I don't think that's the right word. It should even be in the same sentence with, with it. However, if interest rates go up and the price of housing comes down, you know, all, all of us taxpayers, the city, the state, they're getting so much money from the revenue from, from taxpayers and, and uh, you know, home costs that or property taxes that they can't afford for housing to come down. What, how, how do you think we begin to work on this housing debacle that we have here in Hawaii? Wow. <laughs> How long was our program? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could, there's some fundamental, you're talking yeah. about fundamental change, right? Right. Now, obviously, the issues, the underlying issue is supply and demand. Now, let's right. say, we just want to be honest right. about it, right? We have a limited supply. We have right. an ever-growing demand of exceedingly wealthy people who are able to write a check to yep. pay for a house for 1.1, 1.52 million dollars. This is unheard of. I, 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 this is inconceivable to me. I don't know how people buy houses anymore. I could not buy a house like that. Yeah, like people are buying houses because they have a lot of money that's come out of whatever, whatever, whatever bank accounts that they have, whatever resources they have, and they're writing checks for cash and driving up the cost of housing. Local families, my family, our kids, they left Hawaii. They could not afford this. So supply and demand, first of all, bad policy. You have DLNR and the state restricting uh, uh, assets, real estate, keeping it out of the de development picture. So one thing that has to be done is there has to be more state land set aside for development. And it can't just be development for 8A projects that are working in tax credits. Right. You seen this thing on Maui the other day. These people were like shocked because somebody raising their rent from twelve hundred to twenty two hundred dollars. What they don't realize is the reason it's being risen is because there was a tax credit contract 
years before that this that, that a number of partners came together did these housing developments for so they could maintain low rent but those those requirements have a sunset date when that sunset date comes to pass the developer or the owner of this of this property can do whatever he wants with the rates and so they go to market value so the idea that we're going to do development and use tax credits and all of these sophisticated uh, uh, investment ideas without having some reality for the people, it has a cost. People don't realize this. So there's bad policy. What I'm re referring to is we need, we need homeowners to have individual homes where they can have a family. Yeah. And we need to, and also one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the military. The, the military here has a great deal of positive impact in Hawaii. They spend billions. They're a, they're a key element of our economy, not to mention our NASA security, which is obviously paramount. But they also flood the marketplace with, with uh, military personnel that they do not have enough housing on base. So if you're, if you're a homeowner and you want to rent or you're, you know, you're, you're in your home, the ideal renter is a military personnel. They have a large siphon. It's above market cap. It's more than people can afford, but they get it automatically. So one of the things the military needs to do, and this has to go with, has to go with the, uh, you know, the renegotiation of the lease lands between the military and the state, they need to actually start investing in more, more properties, more residential pieces for the military personnel and take the pressure off of the local community. So, I mean, there's a number of things, just driving down the cost of construction through fees, regulations, permits. How about just get a permit? <laughs> you see all these projects you mentioned a moment ago. You see all these projects popping up. These projects were, these projects were thought of a year ago. Our economy is suffering simply because we can't bring desired spending to the marketplace because of regulation. So housing is a very difficult thing uh, I don't, I don't, we're never going to see it go back down to six, 700,000. It's not going to happen. So how, how, how are we going to, how is it going to be possible? You know, the, I don't know that the government or, government or the state of Hawaii somehow, uh, now I'm not for that. I'm going to say, you know, there's, there are these loans out there that are 40, 50 year loans, right? They're, they're not a 30 year mortgage, which mm. is inconceivable anyway. Right. But there are markets that are implementing long term loans, making it possible for a low down and a long term loan so that so that families might be able to afford a property. And maybe there's a criteria where families get a shot. You know, maybe maybe local families get a shot. And honestly, George, I haven't thought this through. Yeah. Part of what we say part of what I'm saying comes out of a desperation for the local families. Yeah. And it comes up against my my principle of liberty. So, I mean, I'm, even as I speak, I'm internally conflicted. But the solution is that difficult. So, you know, people, people who, who uh, have experience and have understanding and wisdom, who see, these, who see these policies working globally, they're the ones that we must resource for, for ideas and, and uh, 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 just for systems and for ideas that will help, help uh, this process or this process, this problem in Hawaii. So I, you know, it's, it's a hard question, George. Supply and demand undermines, undermines it all. And the inability for our government to actually maintain cost controls on goods and services, it's out of control. And part of it is bad policy. Yeah, it's fascinating. You're right. And, and the, I'm thankful because I know I can ask you any question and you'll come straight from the heart and tell me what you think. They are hard questions. And when you get to a level of leadership 
The fact is there's no easy questions, you know, yeah. especially when you take time to have a little bit of empathy and think through other people's positions. I know in Japan, they have like hundred year loans. It's not uncommon for a multi-generational family to have this one house and maybe in three generations it get paid, it get paid off. And right. so uh, it's, it's interesting. And I think you're right. It would do us all a lot of good to understand how different parts of the world have solved a similar problem. Yeah. I was curious, Gary, do you know, I, I do not know what the unemployment rate is in Hawaii. I think we're, we're pretty low. However, it seems to me that there's quite a few people that are dependent upon the government. So those two things kind of seem to be in yeah. conflict, you know, <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm just, it seems that if we do have a downturn and we have a housing issue and we have this odd dichotomy, I don't see how people can even begin to climb up the ladder of social mobility. It seems almost impossible. What do you think? Yeah, you know, well, traditionally, unemployment in Hawaii has been low. You know, it's actually been quite good nationally, comparatively. Uh, it's been low. But you're right. The way unemployment is countered in Hawaii is also interesting. <laughs> it's not actually, it's based on unemployment claims. So if you're a person who's living on unemployment, who's already receiving unemployment, you're not a part of that equation. The oh, wow. people who are already receiving services, they're not, the, they're not those who are, quote, unemployed. We currently don't have... We don't have any checks and balances. We have no, we have no end date on unemployment. It used to be, and I'm sure you remember this, that when a person wanted to have unemployment uh, uh, benefits, they had to go look for a job. Part of the yeah. criteria for receiving the benefit was to show an unemployment uh, officer that, yeah, I went to, I went to uh, Kingdom Builders, I went to Zippy's, and I went to Lex Brody's looking for a job. Look, here's my, here's my job application. It's not that way anymore. Now you just sign up. There's no requirement. And so these people are actually living on unemployment. It's no longer a hand up. It's a handout. So the idea of unemployment was in the past and in its inception was a temporary hand up. So the people who fell on hard times had some assistance from the government to say, okay, you know, we need help for the next 60 days. Turns out my car broke and I broke my arm and I can't work. And if I don't have some assistance, you know, not only are we not going to have a place to live, but we're not going to eat. So that makes sense. But it was it was limited. There was a number of days. Now you're describing something completely different. We have a we have an entire segment of our society who lives on unemployment, who lives on social benefits, and these benefits are what are drying up. People don't realize that over the over this last uh, well, unemployment globally has been out of control because of COVID. There's been no way to manage. Uh, the resources. I, I read a study, an audit, on how COVID money was spent in Hawaii. It was in the SSR, SSR funds audit, and the and they so they graded Hawaii on how they re, how they distributed these funds across the across the spectrum, and the only areas where they had great deal of concern was in the unemployment benefits. Is this where they spent two billion dollars in Hawaii? The federal government spent, I believe, it's two billion dollars in Hawaii, giving unemployment benefits to the citizens who all lost their jobs. Our governor crushed this state. 13, 14,000 businesses closed. How many jobs are that? How many people went home? How many people in our state were actually, actually all of a sudden, uh, you know, decided they were non-essential? Mm. Go home. You're not working. Why did they do that? Because they had ESSER funds to back it up. Now, all these people no longer have a job. 
there's no longer a business. And so where are they going to go back to? I'm, I'm getting to your question, your comment. Where are they going to go back to work when the ESSER funds are gone? So we're, you know, we're headed for rough times. I, I'm not sure exactly. The state can't underwrite this. The state, so what are the state going to do? The state's going to raise your taxes. This is exactly what they're going to do. And they're going to, they're going to put, they're, they're going to bring front and center the suffering of the people to justify raising your taxes. And what I'm saying is, no, the state must, must look at their spending and reallocate the funds properly to support people who actually need the benefit, not those who, who are living there. We must have a system where the people who can work participate in society. It's the only equation that makes sense. It's the only equation that brings order. Everything else will bring more dependency and more burden on the few that are able to pay. And you know what? A max access will occur. It's happening now, but you wait. You wait two years, two years until all of this stuff that we're talking about comes to fruition. People who, who, who are leaving Hawaii now, there'll be a lot more people leaving Hawaii. Yeah, it's... My family is, I'm originally from California and I've, you know, every time I call back to my parents, my parents sold some houses, they left there, all kinds of family members, you know, they just have this. And it, it seems to me, unfortunately, that Hawaii tends to find themselves in a similar financial situation as California. And it seems they choose the same remedies sometimes. And if we can use California as a mirror to look into the in a mirror, as a, as a view into the future, you can kind yeah. of see what the policies are going to create. And there will be a mass exit, is it? On top of that, it seems to breed more crime. I've noticed where I where I am out on the road all the day, there's been an upsurge in crime of people just driving around, casing houses, and they're becoming more brazen. You see people going into people's house during the day or going into their garages and just pulling into their garage and taking stuff. It's If you look around the nation, you can see stuff in Chicago where people are going in and into stores and stealing. And it's, it's you know, when you have a bunch of, people that don't have anything else to do and they don't have any money, you know, it, it just seems it's called, it's, it's called a mob mentality. Mob we, mentality. We have to start getting honest about what's actually going on. Right. You, know, you see, you see all these policies from the federal government bringing in immigrants and just putting on airplanes or buses and sending them to cities and dumping them in the cities. Ultimately they don't assimilate into the community. They create their own community. So what's the problem with that? It seems fine. It seems reasonable. But where they've come from are lands that are, that are in political chaos, and they know no difference. We have, a, you know, I had, a, I had a, a National Guard person approach me the other night on the side after an event, and he said, what's going on with this? I, I see these airplanes coming in here, dropping people in the middle of the night. And now you see this rise of, of groups of, of men, smash and grab mentality, right? This is exactly the culture that they come from. And I'm not saying it across the board. And when people watch this, a lot of them are going like, wow, Gary, that's, that's a pretty radical statement. That's pretty judgmental. That's pretty critical. But you know what? We better get honest. This is, what, this is exactly what's going on. You know, and these, these young men are coming in from other cultures, that the way they do things there is they fight it out. They, they, they use weapons. And, and these cultures are being brought into Hawaii. And the problem is they're not, uh, they're not assimilating with the aloha spirit of Hawaii. 
And so when they see something, they just take it. And the problem, the, there's no attorney general here. Well, there is an attorney general, but the attorney general doesn't prosecute crime. It's not a priority. In Hawaii, I mean, it's still on Governor Ige's desk, a no bail law. So if you're, if you're, if you've come here from another country and that's what the other countries, how they live their lives, just think about this. And you come here and you break in and you steal something. You walk into Safeway, you're brazen. You take whatever you want. You go for the, you go to the alcohol line, you grab a couple of bottles, you go grab some steaks and you grab some stuff on the way out and you walk out the door. Not only, not only are, not only are there, are they usually not arrested because there's nobody to arrest them but there's no charges brought and there's no bail. So they're out of the next, if they are arrested, they're out the next day. No bail law, they're arrested and released. What is the message? The message yeah. is chaos. The message is chaos. And you're seeing it, what you see in Chicago and the other inner cities, it's on its way. The birth pains are all around us. You see it on, 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 uh, on local uh, uh, Facebook accounts. It went through Kailua just the other day. Somebody went down Kailua, just smashing windows, almost like it's a hobby. So uh, we need an attorney general who will actually tell the prosecutors we must prosecute. And we need a governor who actually understands that his job is to bring equal justice to the people. He's supposed to create the governor and the government's job is to create a safe environment where if you want to walk, go out and, and walk with your wife and your kids at five o'clock in the afternoon after work, it's safe. This is what we want. This is what's required. This is what is this. This is a requirement. So that's a gloomy picture. I, I, I'm not painting. I may be painting a gloomy picture, but I'm telling you until, like you said, until we're willing to admit it and get honest about it, we'll never change. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting picture. I think that there's a I think you've painted a beautiful foreground, but I think there's a bit of a background as far as the Chamber of Commerce is 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 in on there. I think that there's a lot of industry here that relies on incredibly cheap labor and that, you know, it wasn't too long ago we seen the debacle with Alun Farms. And there's I, I, from what I have read about policy, it seems to me that if you can bring in working age people that are willing to work for less, you can have an automatic tax hike, you know, sort so to speak. They're not paying into the system. They're paying into the system. They're not getting anything back. And it seems the long-term ramifications of that are be damned. We don't care. We want the money now. And it's another interesting part is usually the first generation of immigrants tend to be incredibly hardworking people but it's the children of those, the second generation that are not really accepted by the community and see the disparity that become, you know, disheartened or upset or, or something like that. I think there's a huge behavioral as well as cultural melee there that that is not talked about. It is, it is this disparity, but I think there's some blame to be shared by the, the lobbyists and the industries that want incredibly cheap labor. Would you agree to that? Uh, that's always been the conversation. Uh, yeah. that's been, that's, a, it's been a kind of a national conversation. There's been, there's been that, that, that lobbying effort, at least been identified that says right. corporate America wants cheap labor and they want open borders, right? There's that one side of that coin. And then the other side of the coin is, uh, that we want 
we want immigrants, we want people who are not who are not uh, assimilated into communities as a voting base. Mm. And this one, this one is uh, so. There's two sides of the coin. Coin. They both rely on the same base. It's the same problem. It's a win-win for them. Basically, the Republican Party has been said. It has been said about this. Let's be honest. The right. Republican Party has been said we need immigrants and cheap labor to run business and government to, re right. to generate resources. The Democratic Party wants these same people, but they want a voting base, and they so that the carrot is a job and a step up, right? The other one is free stuff and social benefits. Yeah. This is the two, these are the two pendulum yeah. swings, right? Yeah. Now this is neither of them are satisfactory. Agreed. So what we have now, and a, there's another component that I, very few people are talking about, and that's talking about what kids learned over the last two years sitting at home on their computers. They learned cryptocurrency and what it means to trade from their homes. And right now, even though crypto is taking a big hit in the market, right? right. Like, I, some studies, and I've talked to people who actually know, there's 400,000 youth that would typically in, in the state that would typically come into the workforce. They're at McDonald's, they're on the farm, they're, you know, they're, they're at Payless or whatever, right? They're, they're entry level uh, pay grade em employment pieces, right? They're, they're dishwashers, they're working in the restaurant and the hotel industry. Those kids are staying home. The, the biggest, the, 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 so that's why state government continues to grow. They keep hiring these kids, giving them a job because their auntie need, said, my son needs a job. So they talk to their uncle. Their uncle happens to be in the HR department for the Department of Health. Oh, shoot, we need a job. So let's hire five city and county, 500 new employees for FY23. Well, we have a shrinking population. Our island didn't grow. Why do we need 500 more jobs? So there's, there's things going on. You have a lack of kids coming into the marketplace to work because there's a different way now, Yeah. right? You yeah. have the state government gobbling up the other kids because they offer them medical and a pension plan. And then you have the corporate piece in the middle wondering, where's all the workers, which is driving up the wage. And so we don't, you know, this idea that we need a mandatory minimum, the marketplace will adjust that, I can assure you. This idea that we're going to somehow come up with an arbitrary number, whether it's 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, $25 an hour. That's the new look. That's the new mandatory minimum. This is, this is foolishness. The market will set the rate. It will. And it happens all the time. I have people who work for me and they say, wow, you know, so-and-so is making $60 an hour. And I go, really? <laughs> Are you kidding? $50 an hour? Really? So it's shocking to me. I mean, I remember that was like, you know, unbelievable number but the market is driving that you know so that's what that's what capitalism is not socialism yeah you're all of these conversations that you're mentioning george they're all there these roots these the problem with these roots are found in socialism and honestly in communism the idea that we're bringing these principles into our marketplace on a national scale is transforming our society and dumbing down our population and creating a quote stable class that's a new line i've never heard it before it's a stable class they don't live on merit and they don't have any vision for the future right but they're they're thankful that they can still eat and have a place to live that's that's exactly what it is that's socialism at work so and and 
politicians, they don't mind taking from the few that have. We constantly hear this conversation. Let's tax the rich. I'm not a rich man, but let's tax the rich. Certainly they can pay a greater share as though they don't pay the vast majority now. They do. The problem with socialism was when you run out of rich people's money, there's no money money left. You've taken all the resources, right? Yeah. And so this is what we're, this is this is where we need change. When I when I declared my candidacy for governor, I said I want to bring I'm going to bring righteousness back to the head of government. Righteousness is always interpreted as a religious term. Yes, it is a religious term, but it's principled. Right. Right. True religion is principled behavior. Agreed. How to have how to have equal justice in a society. How to have merit pay. Those who want to work, they actually receive the benefit from their pay. Yeah. You know, accountable government where your resources, your taxpayer, your your money, George, actually is allocated to what it was designed to do. Right. We don't have false tax collection policies or fees or regulations that go into a, quote, mystery, mysterious general fund allocated to waste and, and, and convoluted administrative pieces that continue to grow. This is where righteousness actually is, is it turns into tangible reality. So, uh, and this is a social rebirth yeah. of what was, right? Yeah, so, can be. Yeah, so I'm, I ramble a lot on this, I'm sorry. No, this is, I, I love it, Gary. I, I, I enjoy the conversation and I enjoy hearing different points of view. And I. I think that, uh, you know, wouldn't it be amazing? Like, let's say you have to pay your property taxes or you pay your tax at the end of the year. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a box you could tick? Like, I want 40% of my taxes to go to roads, 30% to go to education. Why can't we have that? Like, why can't people tell the government we want our tax to go here? We don't want it to go to this fund. We want ours to go here. We, it's our money. It's our government. This is where I want my money to go. Like, there's no reason why you can't have that. And if you did have that, you could start really making some ways in, in, in the corporate or in the government structure of, of how things are done. And I, I also agree that, you know, what we have right now is crony capitalism. We, we don't have a form of capitalism working. If we did, everyone would be a lot happier. When everyone's making money, people seem to be happy. And That's one right. last note that I was thinking is when there's a crisis, when there is a breakdown in society, it often presents us with an opportunity to not only fix that which broke, but to reimagine how something works. I've been talking with uh, some people at my daughter's school about uh, kids graduating with a residual income. And there's no reason why that can't happen. There's no reason why a young kid that's eight can't work with a group of their kids, start, start working on ideas for a business, maybe be sponsored by the school and they could put that business together. You know, there's ways we can change education so that kids, when they graduate, they have a functioning understanding of the true reality that is the world we live in. It doesn't need to be unicorns and rainbows and black and white and oppressed and rich. And it doesn't need to be that. It needs yeah. to be, here's the skills I have to function in this world. I don't care what you look like. I think that's plausible out there. I, and I think we do have some real opportunities ahead of us. What are some opportunities that you see moving forward that we can work on? You got good questions today, George. <laughs> you have great <laughs> answers. And I, I want us to be better. I think, uh, you know, I, uh, first of all, I think you're right. I think the education system is misdirected rather than equipping right. 
it's become into a grooming piece, right? Yes. So now we have this idea that we're going to make everybody kumbaya and that, the, and that the panacea of a graduate is that they love everybody, but they have no skill set. Mm. They can't even read and write. You know, I, we, we had an education forum just the other night. We have a, we have a weekly Zoom call, by the way. You should, you should come on Monday night. Yeah. We, had, we had one uh, on Monday night. This focus was education. Sometimes they're general. Sometimes they're, they're topical. We had one on education. We had a couple of educators come on first. But why? Because they're wise. They've been in the education system for 35 years. Why wouldn't we hear from them? So vocational training is what you're talking about in a sense. There's an idea that there's perfect, you're, you're going to go on to a four-year or eight-year or 12-year degree and you're going to be, you know, do some highly technical piece in our society. But there's the vocational piece that train kids that when, they're, when they don't want to do that, they can go out and get a job and they can actually start participating right then. But the values of understanding both of those are actually the discipline of hard work, yeah. the discipline of doing your homework of doing what's right, of having it graded, making sure that there's actual, that when you're leaving the eighth grade, you can read and write. Actual proficiency standards that are measurable by grade and they should not be passed on. The equipping of our kids and the misunderstanding of what the education system is for parents is the parents are too busy working in Hawaii. Two jobs, two and a half jobs. They send their kids off to school thinking that their kids are going to be prepared that when they graduate from high school, they can go get a job. They cannot. So the, the underlying issue is they're not being equipped by the education system. They're being groomed and passed through. That's why Hawaii's predominantly decade, year over year over decade, ranks at the very bottom of proficiency in the U.S. And those standards, the U.S. standards are low. Yeah. So we're talking about not, we're not, I'm talking about a global picture. Now we live in a global society. Our kids need to be prepared to compete against kids from Asia, from, from Germany, from the Netherlands. Kids, you know, our, our kids are, are not being, they're not, that proficiency test, I don't know if we'd even make it on the paper. <laughs> you know, unless they have a negative zone. Hmm. <laughs> this is the breakdown of our education policy. Of those, of those who, of, I'll be honest with you, and there's a lot of people out there, of the labor union's hands and what a teacher can and cannot do. I, you know, the more I have these conversations with educators, they're so frustrated, the educators themselves. They long to bring to the classroom the enlightenment of a student, to see the light bulb go off in a kid's head. And I know what that looks like. I remember what algebra was like. What is X plus Y to the second power? What does that mean? It's so ethereal. But when all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and you realize that your effort as a teacher actually translated into a revelation for a student, Boom. That's what they long for. That's why they join the profession. But we have a system now that, that the teacher does not have, the, have the, uh, the liberty or the freedom or the, or, or the uh, process to actually be the gift that they are. Instead, you shall teach X and Y. And if they don't know it, that's okay. Pass them through. Shouldn't reflect on us. I recently read a, a board of education director. 13 years sat on the BOE. You know this great quote was when he was done? Nobody lost their job on my watch. You laugh, but I'm dead serious. And that's, that is a nightmare because we have teachers out there, honestly, they, they're not there to teach kids. They're, they're waiting for their retirement. They've lost the passion and the vision. And this guy's declaration, 
Nobody's lost their job on my watch. A union, a union leader in the education department. You know, if people are, people are unwilling to shift and step up to the plate, like you said, it's like, it's, it's going forward, but going forward without understanding the past is unwise. Both things have to happen concurrently. You must understand the past and the way things should have been. We have this woke thing. We're tearing down statues of Jefferson. And we're renaming schools in Hawaii because it's not politically correct, as though history doesn't matter. And, you, and we wonder why we have bad policy going forward, because we don't take into account what actually worked in the past. Or even maybe it didn't work. Maybe that's the example. Yeah. So either either way, uh, either way, I'm confident I didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, I think you did. I, I, really think, did. I, think we, I think we got on education, and I think we talked about. Yeah. I think what I took out of it that was positive is that we must focus on the things that unite us instead of constantly being diverted by things that divide us. You know, if, if we focus on that which unites us. We can find common ground. We can see in each other that we are, in fact, part of each other. We can see that we have, there's a vision that all of us want. You know what? Like the redneck is not far away from the hippie. You know, they're the same person. They want the government to leave them alone. They want to be in their own areas. You know, they, they kind of want the same thing, but it's just this constant level of call it propaganda or call it lobbying, call it whatever you want, but it's division. But the most people I talk to, and I, I wonder if you have found this, if you sit down with somebody, regardless of what color tie they wear or where they're from, if you sit down and have dinner with them and they're both nice people, you're probably going to find some, we're pretty similar in some ways. You might even find a really engaging, fun conversation because you don't agree. And that, those are the best ones. People are like that, but we're being divided. And that, I, I think you bring that, Gary. I've, I've been watching some of the Instagram videos and I've seen you out and about and talking to people and your beautiful grandkids make me want to cry. They're so awesome talking about <laughs> beautiful, but I, I see you talking to different people, be it teachers, be it union members, be it guys like me or nurses. You've been to the hospital quite a bit. And it seems what I'm hearing is that a lot of people are frustrated and that's the common ground. And I, I have big hopes and I'm, I'm, I want to know what else we can do to help. I know we're getting short on time. Is there anything else you want to, uh, to touch on that we didn't talk about? You know, I like what I, and I think we have a couple more minutes, but okay. I, I do have, I, do, I would like to say sh about something about you just said about common ground. And it is absolutely true. I purposely go out and talk to people who have a completely different uh, uh, political perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, let's be honest, I'm a, I'm a right leaning guy. I'm a, I'm a conservative. I, I like conservative principles. I purposely sit with the most left leaning people. We, I actually, we have lunch. Yeah. I actually purposely set up meetings. And we have this conversation, the one that you just described. And they'll ask certain questions, uh, you know, that they know are, are hard for, for conservatives to answer. And we'll have a conversation at the end of these, at the end of these times, we find out and they find out, I find out and they find out that on about 85% of things that matter, we agree. Yep. And they were hung up on a couple of small issues. And I say, okay, so we don't agree about this, but we agree about all this. How about we agree to, to work together on, on the 85%? And let's let the 15% work its way out rather than just wipe my hands of you, write you off as uh, irrelevant or 
or uncaring or bigoted or whatever. Let all that stuff go. You know, I, this is exactly what you're talking about, that we find common ground. That's why I'm not running for a Republican. I'm not running for a Democrat. I'm not running for an independent. I am not going to be the pastor of the state. <laughs> this is a run for the people that we would reason together and gather wisdom. I, I, we were at an event last night in Laie. It was a, it was a get out the vote event. Capenna played. It was great. You know, the, it was from 5 to 10 p.m. It was fantastic. There was, there was, uh, you know, re-election campaigns, and one of them was for an OHA person, a re-election campaign, and uh, so I listened to her carefully when she shared, and uh, I said to her afterwards, I she, she came and introduced herself. We talked for a few minutes, and I said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about OHA, and I've been thinking about a lot about how OHA works with Bishop Estate, and Bishop Estate works with Hawaiian homelands. I said, the three of you share the same value. You want to help the Hawaiian people. I can tell you as governor, and she's listening at this point, I, I can tell you as governor, we are, we, I am going to lobby and we're going to reason together so that these three massive financial institutions can come together and actually create policy to develop the ground that the state keeps saying they're going to develop. And she was, she, so she started going to this rabbit hole of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, you know what? We're, I can assure you that these are the conversations that have to be exercised in humility a willingness to say, I don't have the answers. Yep. Bring, bring your nuggets to the table. Let's put them on the table and let's arrange them for the benefit of the people. There's plenty of resource. There's plenty of abundance. What there's a lack of is humility and willing to say, what's the objective? That which we understand and agree on together. I can assure you this Hawaiian homeland's lease piece is not serving the Hawaiian people. These land leases for ag are not serving the local farmer. These are, these are being withheld by stakeholders who think that they must hang on to the little bit that they have as though it's a little bit. Yeah. Rather than getting clear about the objective, the welfare of the people of Hawaii, whether it be the Hawaiian population, uh, whatever population base it is, whether it's in the education system, whether it's in Department of Health system, it's the same conversation getting clear about what's important and setting aside that which is a distraction and identifying the corruption that's taking the resources out of underneath it all, the legs out, the, the, the creating of division in our society. We see it from top down now. You see it in presidential politics. You see it in neighborhood boards. The entire spectrum is now divided upon those who think that they need to play a stingy game I'm going to hold mine. And if I can't have mine, you can't have yours either. Yep. This is envy. This is the fruit of envy. The idea that there's not enough. This is what must change. This is what righteous leadership brings. The, the ability to articulate that there's more than enough, but we must walk in humility and honor for one another, that we would honor one another and make, and make, make change for the good. It's what you said, a future, a hope worth having. Yeah. It yeah. is possible, George. I can tell you, hope is on the way. Because God, I can tell you, God will honor this. And, and there, so there is, a, there is a religious component. There is a supernatural and spiritual component. I want to be honest with you. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
So we need his presence in the heart of man that we would, that we would reverence one another out of uh, honor, one another out of reverence for him. Right. And yeah, when we have that, we'll see change until we have that. We'll have more of the same. That is really, really well put. I, I, I don't know too much to add to that. I think honor thy relationship is something that everybody should live by. And whether it's with your wife or your husband or your partner or your kids or your work or your, you, whoever, if you honor the relationship, you honor yourself and you honor the community. And I, I, I think I, I, I'm, I am really happy to be talking to you, Gary. And, and I, I think you're doing a great job getting the word out. And I think when people hear conversations like we just had, especially this last part where we talk about uniting people and we're not red, we're not red, we're not left, we're for the people and there is abundance. I don't see how anybody can find something negative in there. And that's such a great conversation. Can you imagine if you had sat, one of these lunches you go to, say you sit down with Josh Green or somebody and you guys just sat down and you had I don't know, a thousand people, 500 on both sides, and you worked out that 85%. I mean, yeah. what a incredible conversation, what an incredible act of statesmen, what an incredible act of setting an example for young people to see about how to be a leader. And I know you're reaching out and I know what you're doing. I hope other politicians or people running listen to this and want to be part of a conversation that helps everybody. It's not afraid to speak. It's not afraid to be wrong. It's not afraid to admit they're wrong. I wish they were more like that. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, you know, George, I think the beauty of speaking your mind, this is the beauty. You get sifted. Yeah. You actually, somebody will actually say, really? Explain that to me. And you realize, I can't actually explain that. Because it's not actually anchored in reality. It's just kind of like your own, what you've made up over your life's experiences. <laughs> and you get sifted. And it's an invitation for correction. Yeah, that we that we wouldn't be so prideful that we wouldn't say, "Wow, you know, I could tell you, George, I, in so many ways, there's so much sifting that needs to go on, and it's an invitation. Even in our conversation, I, I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go away from this conversation and I'll and I'll rethink these things and I'll think, is that really what you think? Because just yeah. it's just a conversation, but ultimately, it, in that sifting process, wisdom comes forward. And then you can actually have understanding. And when you have understanding, you can actually imp implement your understanding to policy. That's where we're running. That's the that's the run that we're suggesting. And we're and I I know we're going to close it. I'm gonna I'm gonna shameless plug for a moment. Yeah, you know, please. You know, I I would invite all of your listeners. We have a Monday night Zoom call. You got to go to our <laughs> website, Gary Cordery for Governor, right? Dot com. Uh, you can go on the website. You can you can actually. Uh, get the link for the uh, the Zoom call. Tonight we're having a, a, a live telephone town hall. There'll be 20,000 invitations to go out. Wow. This will happen again. It's, it's too late to get on it now. But, it, you know, if you want to do that, you can email info at Gary Cordery for governor. You can, you can email the campaign. You know, we're doing walk books or walking neighborhoods. If you want to, if you want to, listen, if your people want to have me there, you press volunteer on our homepage. And then there's a meet and greet button. You just press meet and greet. Now the schedule's filling up. There's not many slots left. <laughs> but even you, George, get, yeah. get 20, 30, 40, 50, 200 of your friends together and let's set up something in the backyard 
and I'll yeah. come. We'll set up a team. We'll bring a team. Okay. They'll set it up. I'll talk for 20 minutes and I'll open the floor. It's open floor questions, whatever they want to ask. And we'll dialogue. We'll do it, what we've been talking. We'll reason together. And it's a great way. And we do them, we do them several a week, sometimes more than one in a day. So, uh, you know, we're out there. We're reaching for people. You can participate on numerous levels. Uh, and then you can write a check. You know, it, you know, you can hit the donate button. I can tell you that we're trying to raise resources so that we can get TV out there. It's a big, it's a big investment, but that it is an investment. It's not throwing your money to the wind. When you, in, when you donate to our campaign, you're investing in your future. Your, the people on this, your cakey, your grandkids. When we win, you, you will be the benefactor. And so how to underwrite this? It requires, it requires the folks, <laughs> yeah. you know? And the max donation, I'll be honest with you, we shouldn't be afraid, I shouldn't be afraid to ask the max donation in Hawaii, $6,000 per person or 12,000 per couple. Many people have the resources to do that if they have the vision, yep. but even $20 helps. So I'm not minimizing, I'm not suggesting that there's a criteria for that. I'm just saying that that's the, that's the, that's the max. If you can write them, check the max, then it would be really helpful because we're, we're just starting to underwrite, bringing a professional team here to do light, to do TV video so that when we are ready, it'll be ready. Uh, so anyway, so a lot of plugs right there, but yeah. Uh, yeah, get to the campaign, go to the website, check it out. And one more time, what was the, can you tell me about the name of the website again? Gary Cordery for governor. It's all spelled out, Gary Cordery, F-O-R, for governor. There yes. And there's plenty of ways to participate, whether you can spend some time, do the meet and greets, if you can donate. There's there's tons of ways that you, as someone in the community, can help make your community better. And it, yeah. But it does involve it does involve getting up and getting out. And, and however you choose to do it, I hope everybody chooses to participate because we're going to get the future that we deserve. And yeah. right. Yeah. So, well, that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. You know what? I, I have one more quick point is I'm, I'm big on words and etymology. And when I hear you say it's about understanding, I think, God, that's so great. Here's a guy who's a builder who literally understands like, what is it? What does understand mean? It means to be underneath and looking up at the thing you're building, like you're under standing so you can see if there's any problems if there's any corruption you know so i'm like god so perfect he's understanding he's a builder like it's yeah. so crazy that you use the right word that it's just and it blows my mind so thank see, you this is what i mean just now like a revelation for me <laughs> understand i never thought of that before but it's so good and it's not yeah. an accident i just got a you know i just got a request from a client we need a cash flow chart yeah this to the schedule Right. And people don't understand that, but you have, a, you, have a, you have a construction project. You need a schedule. You need to know when you should show up, when the subs show up. And he, the, the owner said, we need a cash flow schedule. So we know how, so we're, we assure that we, that we have the funds in, in place so that when the time comes at the end of the month, we can write you a check. And so you have to actually have to go through the process of looking at the schedule, you know, coordinating it with what, what the value of that work that's done in that month and then write it out on a schedule and give it to the owner. Well, this first month, you're gonna to have to write a check for 40 grand because this is the things that we're gonna accomplish this month. Then he knows as an owner, as a state, <laughs> right? It's the same thing. Yeah. Cash flow schedule is a biannual, not a biannual budget, but an annual budget. This is another thing in Hawaii. Why are we using biannual budgets every two years? Think about this. 
What does that open yourself up to as an entity? The Board of Education has a biannual budget, not an annual, but every two years they're budgeting, right? They're thinking every a biannual budget, right? So th this kind of thinking is, it's not, that's not a cash flow schedule. They don't actually understand what, what we're buying and why we're buying it and when we're gonna to need to afford it. So these, these, these elements that you're discussing as a builder, understanding how to, how to actually execute a contract in relationship to the actual project, a finish date, and the vision for the project, it's all part of the deal. So good yeah, one. That, yeah, it, you know, bringing us back, it just blows my mind how someone with experience knows how to operate in the world where if you just enter the world of politics and you stay there, you don't ever really experience the real life world where, you know, there is no safety net. There is no, you know, there is no cushy walls of government to protect you from the big bad beast that is the world around you that'll eat you up and spit you out and doesn't really care. You know, and when you have someone who spent their life in the private sector going into politics, you know, when you say cash flow and cash charts, I just started thinking like, I bet you a lot of people in positions of authority just pan, pawn that off to the secretary or someone lower. And then that's when all the hands start coming out and taking and taking and taking. Because the guy up top just, okay, yeah, do that. But if you're the guy on top that actually knows how to do it, you just streamline the whole process. You need know, probably oh, cut yeah. 12 people along the way. When I see it, when I see project costs come in, I know absolutely right off the bat, this is not real. There you go. This, so why, why is this, why are we spending so much money on the foundation? Why, why is it $70 a square foot when it should be $22? <laughs> why is that? This is exactly what I'm talking about. You, you, so, cause if you don't, if you don't in, in the real world, right. if you don't have a real uh, competitive bid price, an RFP, a request for proposal. If you don't have a competitive one, you don't get the job. Yeah. So you're by nature, you have to actually account for exactly what's going on. You have to understand the project. You have to understand its complexity. You have to understand the components. All of those fit into the schedule because if they're, if the schedule means that you're, it's a night work, that means all of your labor things are time and a half. And so what, so, you know, this is how it is. This is private, the private market. This is capitalism. This is why capitalism works for society because it requires the discipline of understanding the target, the cost, and the time frame allowed to complete the project. These are the basic components of a good project. This is the basic components of a good yearly budget. There's no difference. It just the stakes are different, the players are different, but the underlying strategy is the same. You know, we we have it. We have all of these people. You ask oh, these people. You said uh, you know, administrative officers. That's not how it's done. The legislators get a request from the Department of Education. Can we please have $2 billion? They never look at the $2 billion. They look at what they spent last year and they think, well, things must cost more. Okay. Okay, that seems makes sense to me. It's a feel good <laughs> thing. And the voter goes, wow, my representative really gave it to them. They said no. They said no to one half of 1% of their request, not realizing that, you know, 18, 18%, 20% went down the toilet. That's reality. Yeah. That's, 
that's what's going on. Enough. Yep. Enough. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It just uh, it like you said, there's gonna there's some tough conversations that need to be had, but I think they, I think people are willing to have them if we can just sit down and, and come up with that 85 percent, you know, and and. and I think even people in positions of authority, if, if we can sift, if we have the the integrity to be honest with ourselves and, and just do what we're doing right now, if we all got together and had a conversation, here's what's going on. Here's the way I see it. Oh, well, you're wrong there. Here's the way I see it. Okay, well, what about that? Like, there's such, an, there's such an abundance here to be had. And I think that one, the biggest problem that most of us share is that we feel like we're not being heard. Like, no one's listening. People yeah. are looking at us and not listening like they, they just maybe they're afraid to go on camera and say what they think because they're beholden or they need a favor or something like that but i bet if you took a poll across the board between republican democrat independent hawaiian japanese if you just took a poll amongst everybody i bet you most people would feel like no one's listening no one cares and that's not true i mean i'm talking to a guy right now that cares <laughs> You know what? Yeah, you know what? I you know I think you're right, George. And this is exactly one of the issues in in our uh, the breakdown, of, and the reason that we have quote stakeholders mm. rather than a community. Stakeholders is a nice way of saying this is my piece. This is what I want. <laughs> right. This is the group I represent, and we should we should have this. And quite frankly, we're willing to throw everything away if we don't get it. We will mm. leverage all of society. We will go on strike. We, we, will, we will stand until I get what I want, the stakeholders, right? And the other, so the other possibility is that we would reason together and consider yeah. the target and understand how everybody can participate in achieving the goal. And, and paying attention to somebody is exactly what goes on with the, with the local community and its government. This government needs to account for how it has not kept its promises to its people. It's a fundamental in relationship building. You must have authenticity and relationship to have honest conversations. Otherwise, there's no trust. There's no honor. This is the same people asked me the other day about Mauna Kea, the, the, the telescope. What do I think about the telescope? I said, you know what we need to do? The governor needs to account and stand responsible for the broken promises and the betrayal for the Hawaiian people. They made promises and they broke them, period. Let's just have an honest conversation and start there. And when people will account for bad behavior, and what I mean by that is a broken promise, then there's a restart. There's a new possibility. Until people are willing to do that, the human, the human being in all of us says, nope, I don't trust this. Yep. Not right. And I, you know, it happens for me all the time. I, I was having a conversation with a lady at the house the other night, and she's talking to me. And I look away for a second. I just look away. Something happened in her background off to her shoulder. And she said, do you need to do something? You're not looking at me. I was like, <laughs> and I loved it. Yeah. It was like, you are right. And I didn't say this to her, but in my spirit, I knew she was right. I knew that she did not have my full attention. Yeah. And it was, it was such a gentle and undirected rebuke yeah my dishonor of her and i was so grateful i don't it doesn't matter what she wanted to talk about 
it may have been the least important thing in my mind, but the fact of the matter, there's a human being standing in front of me, talking to me. That's what's required. We need people like that. Yeah, not afraid to bring you back down. Hey, I'm, I'm right over here. We're living now, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but we're here right now. So what right. are you thinking about? Get out of the way. <laughs> right in front of you, Shannon, right yeah. in front of you. This is, you know, so there it is. Yeah. Yeah, she seems like an awesome person. I, I admire that too. That's something that a lot of us just let go. A lot of us, and when you do that, you, 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 kind, of, you kind of decline your own dignity when you don't say anything about it. Yeah, she wasn't actually correcting me. Yeah, it was a sincere out of her out of out of the out of the goodness yeah. of just her conscience just spoke yeah. right out of her mouth. She wasn't. There was no. There was no strategic correction going That's on. Right. Oh, okay. It was just authentic. It was like, <laughs> oh, do you need to do something? Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, boom, just like that. Yeah. And I can tell you, uh, I was pierced, and I and I was so grateful. Because uh, there are those who will just say, you know, they realize they're being ignored, and they'll just like come right at you, like you know, yeah. Which is also, which, which is also, uh, which is also true, right? I'm saying in the moment to be corrected like that was such a gift. And this is what I'm just, I'm saying. This is what I'm saying to you. When we reason together, if you get Josh Green in a room and some other political figures in the room, yeah. and you actually want to hear. You actually are an invitation. Yeah. That your heart is open. That your palms are open. Right. You're not. Your arms are not crossed. A positioned indifference. Then you can make a difference. And this is what we need. This is why we need new leadership. People who will actually stay at stand unafraid of a difficult conversation, willing to listen. And provide leadership, where currently we have none. And I'm just being brutally honest. We have no leadership right now. It we're, shows. we're a ship where this, where the mast is broken and there's no anchor. It's a drift. We don't, that's not what we need. Yeah. It's, you know, when I, I, again, with the words, like, you know, when I think of a sh relationship, you know, you think of that word ship in there and in relation to what, what, it's like we're in a ship, but people, there's two people in a ship and they're each rowing the wrong way. You know what I mean? You're just going in circles. But to, if you honor the relationship, then you work together, you paddle together. You know, that's the relationship. And we're all in relation to each other. This is a giant ship we're on. And the fact that half the crew wants to go this way and half the crew wants to go that way. And the other one's worried about the food and the money and like, hey, get everybody up deck. Get everybody on deck over here. We're gonna have to have a little talk. It's on fire. <laughs> yeah, the ship's on fire. You guys, I, we hit an iceberg. Okay, the band's still playing, but we hit an iceberg. <laughs> Quit rearranging those deck chairs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, Gary, I, I, you've been gracious with your time. I really enjoy talking to you, and um, I learn a lot, and I, I look forward to the future. Uh, of our government and, and working together and, and talking together and building a better community. So thank you from, from all of my audience. I did, I did have a guy that called and got really mad at me, Gary, about you. Ah. And he was, he was, uh, he's a good friend of mine. And he was like, I don't think Gary knows the constitution. 
you know, I want you to challenge them on this, George. And so uh, we may not have time today, but I might have a list of, I've had a couple of people that I've been talking to, a lot of good stuff and some, and some, uh, some pushback on some things. So I'll get those in order. And yep. next week when we talk, I'll present you with those. Okay. You know, it's good. I, had a, I was on the Big Island in a meet and greet and this lady said, and she said, what about section 13, paragraph 2A in the constitution? <laughs> do you know what that means? And I said to her, you know what? I do not know what that means. I, I was just honest. I mean, really, yeah. that's specificity. Uh, I don't know what that means. And so we had the conversation and it was good. And it ultimately, you know, uh, it was clear. So your, your friend might be right. There might be things I don't know. But there yeah. are building blocks that the purpose for the constitution. I'm pretty clear about that. But I would Fantastic. love to. Uh... <laughs> Fantastic. I, 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 yeah. I would love to have, I'm going to ask you the question because he's a, he's a really awesome guy and he's a, he's a beekeeper and he's, oh, he man. is, he's a really smart guy and he's, he's a, uh, I really want him on board and I've been talking yeah. to him and I think I got yeah. him close. So we'll see. It'd be a great conversation. Maybe awesome. I know. You mean he's captures bees that you're talking about a beekeeper? He raises queen bees and he oh. sends them all over the world. Oh. He has written papers on how to uh, breed the different kinds of bees. And he is, I think he's pioneered some ways of changing beehive behavior, which is fascinating to think about. He's, yeah. you know, with, with the bee problem we have here in Hawaii and throughout the world, Hawaii is one of the only habitats that doesn't have a certain type of mite. So, uh. It's, it's one of the premier spots that people go to to get bees that are free from mites. And he's a really knowledgeable guy. So, but yeah, yeah, we'll talk more about it. He's a, it'd be an interesting conversation. Maybe he so, can change my mind with some bee action. I'll tell you what, he's, uh, he's, he's changed my mind on a few things, you know. Okay. And, uh, That's the he's, beauty he's of one of us. I love he's it. One of us. So, yeah. all right. Okay, well, tell the family I said hello. I hope you have a great day, and I'll get this over to you guys real soon. All right, aloha, George. Okay, thank you, thank Gary. You. Aloha. Aloha. Bye. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that you run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. 
Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.